0: Masechet Rosh Hashanat of twenty-three, we saw the Mishnah regarding the ceremony of the torches that they would use, uh, going all the way from the from Jerusalem from Hadaseh and then it would travel up north, and then eventually all the way out to Bavel, so that within a few minutes um, of uh, of announcing the Rosh Chodesh the entire um, land of Israel and Bavel would be able to know the correct date. And in that that time, they would not have to keep Yom Tov Sheni, at least not in Bavel. So now we're going to give some more details about exactly how these bonfires work. We're also going to explain this uh, missing link over here. There seems to be a lot of uh, distance uh, to be able to see that far. And um, also, exactly when did they light the torches? The torches would only be effective at night, when you can see them from far away. Uh, so, which night would they light it? After all, usually you could see the new moon uh, toward but, towards the evening. Uh, however, Bet does not convene until the daytime. So, really, they would not be able to clear it until the ne- until that day during day of Rosh Chodesh, and then so they could only. First make the bonfires the night after the um the Rosh Chodesh is declared. So that's what we begin with here. En Masin so, for example, let's say today is Sunday. Let's say today would be the thirtieth of the previous month, and tomorrow would be the thirty-first. So, the chodesh theoretically could be today or tomorrow. So, if the chodesh, if it's if the month is seen at its time, in other words, the witnesses saw it um, last night around sunset time, and then eventually they would come to the bet in today during the day, and they would say, okay, today is Rosh Chodesh. That means bizmano. That means the previous month was chaser, only 29 days, and this day is Rosh Chodesh. Uh, only in that case do they make the bonfires, and they would make the bonfires tonight. So even though tonight is already the second day of the month, and so it would be too late for them to know when to pray Musaf or anything like that, um, the essential thing is that they would know going forward when any holidays or anything during that month would be, they could set their calendar and they would know for sure that tomorrow is not Rosh Chodesh. So then they could go back to their regular schedule. We're going to see there was a custom not to do work on Rosh Chodesh. Um, so it was done at the night of, the, of what would have been the extra day. Uh, on the night, what would have been the 31st day, but there is no 31st day. If they, if the witnesses do not come on Sunday, but instead they only see it on Sunday night, and then they come on Monday, which means that the previous month was maleh, then the court would, they would not light torches at all. No torch, no, no sign. So that on this, this tonight, if they see torches, they know that the month was chaser, and yesterday was Rosh Chodesh. If they see no lights at all, then they know that the previous month is maleh and the next day is gonna be Rosh Chodesh. So it was more of an on off uh, switch. Good. So according to this, only if the previous month was chaser, then they would make torches. If the previous month was maleh, then they would not make torches and they would know from the lack of torches that's male. My what is the reason for this? Why don't, why don't you make torches uh, both nights? Right. The question is, why not make a do torches tonight if the if the Rosh Chodesh was today, and if it ends the Rosh Chodesh ends up being tomorrow, then make the torches tomorrow night. That the that will say the previous day will be was Rosh Chodesh. And the answer is because we're it's that system will get messed up. If Rosh Chodesh has in other words, it was only the 30th day was Rosh Chodesh, and that day was Friday, right? The witnesses came on Friday and says today, this 30th is really the first of the next month. So then normally you would do it, make uh, light torches that night, but that night is Friday night, that's Shabbat. And although it's true we violate Shabbat for for witnesses to come to the Betin, we do not violate Shabbat to get the word out, for messengers to go out. So there's no permission to violate Shabbat and make torches in order to get the word out. So we wouldn't be able to do it Friday night. So when we make torches, would have to be only Shabbat. Shabbat. Now, if you're going to wait till Saturday night, Rosh Chodesh was Friday, and then you're going to light them Saturday night. Now, if in general, you always light, um, you light either the first night or the second night, and depending on when the Rosh Chodesh is, but you always have torches. Then, in this case, it would be confusing. Um, some people may think, oh, I guess that Rosh Chodesh was Friday, but since they couldn't light them Friday night, so they're doing it at the first opportunity, which is Saturday night. Or maybe Rosh Chodesh was Saturday. And that's maleh, and there they are lighting torches because now it's Saturday night, which is when they would normally light torches for a maleh month. And so you see that uh, since you can't do it Friday night, the sign on Saturday night is ambiguous and confusing. And therefore, they said all, uh, all week long, no matter, no matter when it falls out, we will only light torches on that night that is Rosh Chodesh and not on, and not on the Maleh. And that way, if the Rosh Chodesh is, in fact, on Friday night, they would light on Saturday night. And then they would know, oh, Saturday, now doing Saturday night because it was Friday. And if it ends up being, if it was Saturday, they would not light at all because they never light on maleh. and then that would be clearer. Okay. Good. Now last question on this Ben Ben Am Shabbat lo kelal. lo Moshe Shabbat Hold on. We can solve this problem that you had that you had just now. Why not uh, during a normal month, when a, uh, whenever it's, when it's during a weekday, we should light the torches, whether it's male, male or whether it's chaser, the night after Rosh Chodesh. Either way, um, the, the the night after the 30th or the night after the 31st. And then, if it happens to come on Friday. We will not light at all. We will know. This is, everybody knows the system, right? If it ends up being Friday, you're not going to find any torches on Saturday night because if you, if you find torches Saturday night, then those torches are for Malay and it means Rosh was on Shabbat. So when you don't do it on Shabbat, then they, um, and since we do it always for Malay, they'll know that it was Chased if you don't find any, tor- any torches, right? So really they, you could uh, remove the ambiguity as long as everybody understands that. And that makes perfect sense. Um, so we reject that. In other words, because uh, um, during the whole rest of the year, every month, they're always expecting a torch, right? Whether one night or another. So this, in this case, they'll come to make a mistake because they'll say maybe, in fact, it's male. And the fact that they didn't do it. Um, is because it didn't work. Um, in other words, maybe they didn't get a chance that for some reason they, they they lost the matches or maybe some persecution and they couldn't light the fires. In other words, when they see an absence, they're not going to be like, hey, why is that? Because during the rest of the week, it's never absent at all. It's never no fire. It's always on one night or the other. And so now when they see no fire, they're not really going to be sure that that's because Rosh Chodesh was on Friday night. They're going to say maybe it really is. Ten- it really is on Shabbat. And the fact that there's no fire is because for some reason beyond their control, they didn't get a chance to. They weren't weren't able to light any fire. Um, so that is not a, a, that as a problem. Therefore, um, we have to go. We have to do the system that we said before. And finally, last question. So now we're saying okay, we agree. It's better to in general only do it one of the nights. Because that way people will be used to the idea that a lack of, tor- of, a, of fire is also an indication. And then they'll be used to that. But if you're going to choose one night, why not choose the second one and not the first one? Anytime it's male, then make a torch that the night after that. And so if, and if you see no torch at all, you'll know it was the first day. Um, so why not do it that way? Because uh, then people won't know when Rosh Chodesh in fact was until after both days, until after the 31st. And then that means they can't do melacha. They used to be accustomed not to do melacha, especially, and this went on for a long time, uh, especially women would not would not do certain types of work on Rosh Chodesh. So on the first day, on the 30th day of the previous month, they would not do work because maybe that day is Rosh Chodesh. And if they see the, if the indication is that night, um, whether there's a torch, then that was Rosh Chodesh, then they know, oh, was Rosh now we can continue to do work on the next day. So that works better. If you wait till the second night after the 31st uh, to make, to give the signal, then they're not gonna know anything until then. And then every month they're gonna have to uh, suspend work for two days, so it's more inconvenient. And so that explains their system. Very good. Now, Mishta continues and says, Now we're going to go into a detour about different types of wood. Since it describes that they brought cedar poles and then they wrapped it with other types of wood uh, to make these torches. So we're going to get a little uh, lesson in, in ba'ani. Amar Yehuda, arba amine arazim hem. There are four types of uh, of, of cedar trees. Erez, katrom, as, shemen, uberosh. So there is just the regular cedar, katrom. You can see, actually, this is probably uh, comes from a Greek word because the taf and dalit in, in, in all, all languages switch with, uh, are, are interchangeable. They're both dental letters. So this actually says cedar. cedar. Um, and so these are all other types, pine pinewood and cypress. Kartom, what is kartom? That itself is, has another name, Amarav Addera. Zo Galmish. Others give other names for this type of cedar. Now, what we just said before is that there's four types of cedars, but we're about to say another opinion. No, actually, there are 10 different subspecies of cedars. This uh, is It's talking about in the end of days in the future, all the wilderness will all be populated with beautiful trees, all forests, and it lists different types. And so if we count here the seven of them, the cedar, acacia, myrtle, pine, and also cypress, plane tree, and a larch. So there you go. Well, that's only seven, actually. Um, but Erez, uh, we're now going to translate some of these into Aramaic. What is, it? What is Erez? Arza, shita, tornita, hadas, asa. That's Myrtle. Es shemen afarsema berosh shaga If you're more interested in exactly what these uh, species are, you can look at the notes on the side here. OK, so now we know that there's not just four, but he said there's 10. This pasuk only said seven. Oh, besides those seven in a the pasuk, there's three more, and they are the terebinth oak and coral wood. Uh, what are these in Aramaic? Alonim or another version. Of what we just said, Aronim, Armonim, Almogin, right? The three added ones are these, and uh, Aronim, Are, Armonim, Dulbe, Almogin, Kasita, and that's their translation into Aramaic. So there you go, there's all these 10 types of cedar trees. Okay, the last one that we mentioned is coral wood. That would be wood that you get from coral that grows under the sea. And so now we're gonna to go to a tangent about coral. Which is really fascinating. How do you get coral? It's really difficult. So here is going to describe how they uh, fished dove for coral back then. The adir loya abirenu. Another pasuk in Yeshaya uh, talks about that at the end of days is going to be a great river that will come from the Temple Mount and go all over the place. This river is going to be so big that even a large ship will not be able to cross it. That's Sea that's Adir. It's talking about a big ship. Okay, why are we talking about a big ship? Because they would use a big ship, one that looked kind of like this. This is a warship from Roman times. And they would use that for, uh, for diving for coral. How would they do that? They have to bring tw- uh, 6,000 workers who worked around the year of 12 months. Or or in the versions that they would bring um, 12,000 people, uh, workers, and they worked for only six months. Okay, either way, it took a lot of work. And they took a ship, a nice big ship like this, and they filled it with sand until it sunk down to the bottom of the ocean, um, of the sea, where the coral is. And then divers would go down. I mean, they didn't have diving equipment. Um, as, you know, they weren't scuba, but they held their breath. And there are people that do this today. They train and they can hold their breath for a few minutes and go down. So these were experts. And then uh, they would tie of flax ropes around the coral, and the other side, they would tie to the boat. And so you had all these 6,000 or 12,000 people, and they're all tying. And they would um, then take the sand, uh, off the ship, right, They'll remove it, and then the boat would start, would rise, and uh, with that strong, powerful rising, it would pull all the coral that was attached to the, to the ropes and pull it up to the top, and then when they got to the top, they could just uh, bring it into the boat, and that is a tremendous amount of work, but that's how they harvested coral. Machalif al had teren and they, um, they could cha- exchange it for twice its weight in silver. So it was uh, well worth the effort. Um, these coral were, were found in ports. Uh, there were three ports, uh, two that were, belonged to the Romans and one to the Persians. Uh, The Roman ports, they got corals from them. The Persian one, they were able to find pearls there, and it was called the royal port. All right. Really interesting. And uh, uh, following, since we quoted these Pesukim about trees, we're going to add another, a few Agadot also about trees. Uh, and says, That when the enemies of Israel came to Jerusalem and they took trees from the Bet and from Jerusalem, um, they, uh, they're going to have to pay back every single acacia tree that they took. They will bring back. We'll plant once again uh, those and, and bring them back. And desert refers not to some desert but rather Jerusalem itself because Sion, Jerusalem, was made into a wilderness during a time of destruction and it will all be brought back. Uh, so another reference to trees in a de- in a desert anyone who knows torah but doesn't teach it is like a, a myrtle in the wilderness a myrtle smells beautiful but there's nobody there to smell it so this is the classic question right if there's a tree in a desert and no one to smell it does it really smell good no and therefore that's the same as someone who learns torah but doesn't share it right very nice that you smell you smell good you have this torah but you should share with others. Another version of Rabbi Yochanan is the opposite. Uh, Anyone who learns Torah and teaches it in the wilderness, in a place where there are no other sages, that is like a myrtle in the desert. And that's beautiful. A myrtle in desert, even though it's not, not too many people there, but once in a while someone passes by and they appreciate that myrtle so much more. In other words, if you're in a place that has so many myrtles, you're in the botanical gardens, this one myrtle doesn't, doesn't make a difference. And so if someone teaches Torah in a big city where there's lots of Tamedin Chamim, it's good, but it's not as, um, as, it doesn't stand out as much as someone who teaches in the middle of nowhere. And uh, that uh, so here, the analogy to a myrtle in the desert is actually good. So according to this, if there's a tree in the desert that there's no one around to smell it, yes, it does, still does smell, someone will, someone will pass by. So, following up on the fact that uh, the enemies of Israel have to pay back whatever they stole, um, but there are some things that they won't be able to uh, have a remedy for. So, the Pasuk, uh, another Pasuk in Yeshaya says, For brass, uh, I will bring gold. In other words, uh, anything, any brass that they stole, when they come back, inflation and penalties they have to bring gold for the same weight and any and for iron that they took they have to bring silver instead and for wood that they took they have to replace it with brass and any stones that they brought down they have to replace it with iron so but all these things are just monetary so yes they can be replaced but Very powerful line. But instead of Rabbi Akiva, that the Romans tortured and killed and his colleagues, what can they bring? What else? What, what can you? What, what, how can they replace what we lost by the tragic uh, martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva? And regarding that, Joel says, yes, you can be cleansed of all the other things, the monetary items, but for the, the blood, the blood of of Akiva and the other sages, Loniketi, there is no way for them to be cleansed of uh, that tragedy. Okay, and now back to the Mishnah. And so we mentioned that uh, we uh, they we make the torches all the way till Baltin, which was somewhere in Bavel. My bet Baltin, where exactly? Is that Amarav Zobiram? Okay, they they knew where that was. My Gola. And then it says that they would continue, that was the last stop, but they would continue waving up and down until the entire diaspora was a light like a big bonfire. And we're wondering, what does that mean a big bonfire? We just know that there is, you know, there's a line and that's the last stop. How does it look like the whole diaspora is lit up on fire? Uh, so here we have the explanation, of Gola means Pompidita, like the whole city. What do you mean that was like a bonfire? It's an amazing thing. When they saw that, uh, that mountaintop near Pumpedita, then everyone in the city, they would be messengers themselves, and they would go up to their roofs, and they would wave torches so that the whole city right all the Jews in the city would be on their roofs waving it waving so you look around at all the rooftops and you see this amazing sight in the middle of the night so this is really quite amazing and beautiful and uh, it it would show their uh, allegiance uh, to the to the to the Betin in Jerusalem how you can get that message all the way across so you know while this may have been a first um uh, invented uh, as a polemic against uh, against uh, you know, sectarians who were trying to thwart it, but and also this also uh, relates to some. Sometimes there was tension between the Betin in Israel and the Betin in Babel, like who could be in charge. So this would um, show that everybody has to follow the calendar in Israel, which is a good thing to have one calendar. Otherwise there would be a danger of having two calendars and separate to two people. Um, so nevertheless, um, now that it became this, you see it will be such a, um, a spiritual high and to, to be together with everyone and, and celebrating the new moon in this way uh, every month with these bonfires. Of course, the bonfires um, either never happened or happened only for a short time because the whole thing was messed up. But the Mishnah includes this anyway, and the Gemara gives this whole long description. I think because the symbolism of it is so powerful. So even if we're not doing it, nevertheless we should think of what the, the meaning behind this ritual and still learn the lesson from it. Tanya, Rabbi ben Al Azar Omer Af Uchayar VeGeder the Mishnah mentioned uh, just uh, four places. Uh, nevertheless, there are some or also more places that were on the way. And these are another few mountaintops. Now, where were these places? According to one version, they were in between, right? That long distance was filled in. With these three extra cities, or another version says no, that was going a different in a different direction, so it was split off, and one would go to Bavel, and others would go to other places. Um, one thinks that these places are in one direction; the other thinks it's in a different direction. Between each uh, each one of these mountain tops. There would be, there was eight parsaot. Uh, lehu, so, how much altogether? Well, if it's four stops, and that would be, that would make 32. But go look, if you go go to travel from, from the Mount of Olives to Bitbaltin, B- right, and calculate if you're going to walk there and see how long it is, it's much more than that. So how do you explain this? No, the way that they used to go is not the same as the way way that we go now. When we go now, there's all kinds of roads that, they used to be straight roads. Now the roads are blocked and we have to go in circuitous uh, routes. As Hosea says, I'm going to hedge up your way with thorns. And so you won't be able to find the path. So we, uh, our paths are not as straight as they were back then. My paths, he made crooked. The course of the exile have become longer. Uh, so actually, this makes a lot of sense because we're going from mountaintop to mountaintop. Then you're going as the, as the crow flies. It's just a direct, right, a direct uh, um, uh, uh, airspace. Uh, that you're going from one to the other, if you're actually traveling, you have to go around and up and down all these mountains, it would take a lot longer. All right, beautiful. And now we go to the next Mishnah. And then we're going back to the witnesses that would come to Jerusalem. And when they came to Jerusalem, there might be hundreds, even thousands or tens of thousands of people that are coming from all over the place to be witnesses. Because they all saw the moon and everyone who sees it as a mitzvah, they should go it was a big courtyard. That would be the holding station for the witnesses to wait. It was called Bet Ya'azek. We'll talk about why it's called that. All the witnesses would be there, and then they, the Sanhedrin would check them out in that area. And they would put out a lot of food. Uh, uh, uh hors d'oeuvres and, and appetizers and, and meal and everything uh big big so that everybody would come so this is uh, one of my favorite Mishnayot. it shows that some things never change right you want people to show up to an event <laughs> just advertise that there's food and that way they will come because they come once and they see the food and then the next year or the next month, when they see it, they says, oh, should we bother going? It's such a long way. And they'll be like, oh, remember those bodekas? Oh, yeah, that was fantastic. All right, let's go. We'll, we'll get some bodekas too. Um, all right, there is a question here, because you're not allowed to bribe uh, witnesses. Um, so is this, you know, are they going to come just for the bodekas so they can make up some testimony? So when the Yishanim discuss that, and they say, that they're not worried. You're not really paying them directly for it. Okay, but misham kol Yom. Um, now, at first, they would come anytime uh, during the week, uh, but on Shabbat, they, since they came, they, they would not be able to move. There's a halacha, if you leave your tehum, if you leave your city and go to another one, let's say they did it by mistake, you didn't realize, then you can't move. Once you're outside your tehum, you're not allowed to move at all. So these witnesses, they're allowed to, to leave their original city and come to Jerusalem. But once they're in Jerusalem, they, now they're serving as witnesses. Now they can't leave. They couldn't leave from that spot. And that was very inconvenient. And so now people said, I don't want to go to Jerusalem on Shabbat because then they're going to be stuck there in that in that little spot the whole day. So And he says, listen, if you come for Jerusalem, if you come from outside to Jerusalem, then this will be your new, your new And you can walk 2,000 amot uh, all around and so now you have freedom of movement and you can enjoy your day all around Jerusalem. And so that, that would encourage people to come even on Shabbat. Amazing Takana. And now it adds more and says uh, not only people who are coming to serve as witnesses, also a midwife. Um, interesting name for a midwife. It's not the usual name. Um, But uh, we'll we'll see why they call it that, Um, who comes to help someone and she goes from one city to the next. Now, technically, she's allowed to go there because she's helping someone who is uh, in need of medical care. Uh, But once she gets there and she does her job, she technically can't move. She can't move from that spot because she's outside of her techum. So part of the same takana is that she can go around and walk anywhere as if she's part of the new city that she came to. And also a firefighter, or someone who is fighting off uh, some enemy, uh, enemy. Or saving someone who was drowning, or saving someone if a building fell on them and to, to remove the rubble. All these rescue workers, we want to encourage them to violate Shabbat and travel. Whenever they need to, and therefore they shouldn't feel like they're now going to be stuck and not be able to move for amot, or even one, that spot they can't move till the end of Shabbat. So the is you can walk anywhere in that in that in that area. It's interesting that the first example is a midwife because the moon uh, is also compared to a woman giving birth. Right? We call it Ibur. Is it a pregnant month or not a pregnant month? And uh, so this symbolism is probably uh, nicely relates uh, to the theme of the rest of the, the uh, symbolism of the Mishnah. Um, this is a, a practical halacha too, because nowadays you might have a, a Hatzalah driver. And so he drives someone to the hospital. Okay, that's great mitzvah. You just uh, help save someone's life. But how about going back home? So technically, no, you're not saving anyone when you're you're driving back home, so spend the rest of Shabbat in the hospital. Um, But then if you say that, then they're not going to want to go and pick up the person in the first place to take them to the hospital because they don't want to spend the whole day. And then that'll be uh, dangerous for the person. So therefore... Um, the Poskim discuss this, and uh, they discuss cases uh, when and where the, the, the uh, Hatzalah driver will be able to, to drive back home, even though there's no patient with him, so that they will uh, want to do it the next time, and also to be ready, just in case anybody else calls and they need to be around. Uh, good. So that's the Mishnah. This place, this courtyard, how, what exactly is the name of it? Is it Bet Ya'azek with an Ayin or Bet Yazek? It's interesting because they didn't have, they didn't write down the Mishnah until, until times of the Geonim. So this is all oral, and so orally, it's uh, easy to to um, to mistake Ya'azek and Yazek. It's actually you'd only make a mistake if you don't pronounce the Ayin, and it seems that in those days they, in their style, they did not pronounce the Ayin uh, very clearly. We can see that from other places, and but here also, this is one. Okay, so anyway, what's the difference between these two names? That's talking about the mashal of the kedim. It says, Hashem, uh, imagine someone who makes this uh, beautiful... Um, uh, uh, the, this beautiful uh, 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 garden and takes care of it. So too, Hashem took care of Bnei Israel and set them up and everything. And then uh, ben Israel sinned. Anyway, so in describing the uh, the farmer uh, clearing away the uh, uh, digging and clearing it at, from stones, he's improving it. So this means a good, a positive word to clean something up and to make it nice. So is it called because it was such a beautiful place? Or Bet bazikim, or maybe it's called that uh, because the, this word also comes up in Yirmiyah, when Yirmiyah himself is put in chains by the Babylonians. He says he was bound with change, and the word for change is bazikim. Is it called Bet Um, because it's a place where they are chained? In other words, they're in jail because they get there, and then they can't move after that, right? Before the Takanav, there was a holding pen, and they weren't allowed to get out. So it was a negative term. So which one is it? Is it a place that's all really nice? Or is it a place that you're stuck there? So we can answer it, because after all, they had huge uh, uh, huge meals there. So this sound, sounds like it was a fantastic place because uh, they wanted them to come back. So maybe in fact, it was both. They, uh, they did provide meals there, but the, the meals were a compensation for the fact that their movement was restricted. So it was a jail, but also it was a jail with really good food. <laughs> um, uh, this kind of reminds me of um, uh, juries uh, who have to be quarantined. So you know, they can't they can't leave their hotel but they're given a nice hotel and food and taken care of so that they uh, won't complain. Okay. And now we get to the next Mishnah. How exactly do we check the witnesses? It's first come first serve. Uh, You know, even if an important person comes, but they came an hour later, no, you don't, you, you, they have to wait. Uh, So we take the first uh, pair that shows up, is going to be at least two people, it could be more, but wh- whoever is the uh, oldest of them, uh, we or the greater, uh, we take that person and separate them, because we always um, uh, interview, uh, interrogate witnesses uh, individually, and then bring the other one and then ask them the same questions and see if they line up. ra'ita et how exactly did you see the moon? Did you see it in front of the sun or behind the sun? In other words, which one did you see first? Now, in order to see the moon, you have to wait till the sun is in front. In other words, the sun has to set first, and as it dims, the moon has to be behind it. And then then the moon sets, you know, uh, some few minutes afterwards. That's the only way you will be able to see it. And the Betin already knows this. They already know what they should expect to see. And so therefore, this is important whether they see it before or after. Lisfona drama, Where in the sky do you see it? In the north or in the south? That'll depend on the season. Uh, where it is in the sky. Exactly how high was it in the sky? And which way did it tilt? How wide was the, they only see the really the bottom of the, uh, 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 a semicircle of the moon, um, but how wide was it? If they say we saw the moon first and it was in front of the sun, so the moon would set first and then the sun, then we reject them because we know that that's impossible. So these judges were experts in astronomy, so they knew how to catch liars. And then after the first one, they'd bring the second one in and ask him uh, the same questions. If their statements line up, then they can validate their uh, testimony and they say, okay, good now we are ready to now technically once you have the first uh, uh, pair and they are validated we don't need any other witnesses so we could have just gone and said oh everybody go home thank you for thank you for coming but if we do that, then they'll feel bad. Oh, we came for nothing. See, we shouldn't have bothered coming. And then the next time they're going to say, oh, remember last time we came and we waited in line and then they didn't need us. They probably don't need us. So therefore the Din will actually interview every single one of the pairs of witnesses. Um, not the whole interview, just a few, uh, ask a few questions, right? They'll pick one of these questions and ask them. Not that they need them, but only so that they don't uh, leave disappointed, so that they will come back the next time. You know, if anyone's ever done jury duty and you wait around all day and they don't call you, you see, we I, I wasted a day for nothing, they did not need me. So it would be a good idea to have a person do something, at least uh, right? Ask, be asked a few questions, um, so that you feel like, oh yeah, that was fun, I came, and they'll also remember the burekas for next time, and make sure to, to continue coming, and that way we can be sure that all the witnesses will come from all over, and number one, we can guarantee that people will come, and so wherever the moon might be uh, might be seen, they'll will have we'll have a citation, and also so that everybody will be involved, And uh, we're going to see there's also a spiritual part of it, which is everybody's looking up to to the sky. And as as they look up to the sky, like we do when we do Birkata Levana, and we see it as a way of greeting the face of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and you know, thinking about uh, 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 philosophical things and connecting to the great powers in heaven and through that appreciating everything that Hashem has created. So by a- and, uh, asking everybody to look up at the sky and come and uh, testify to the moon, everyone's in be- being involved in this appreciation of, uh, of the creation and everyone's also being involved in the process of the Betin, which uh, then bolsters also the authority of the Betin in Jerusalem. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.